Hello and welcome to the second edition of Studio Break. I'm your host, David Linaway, and today I'll be talking with Diana Baumbach, all about her studio practice, her adventures traveling the world, and why exactly she watches trashy television from time to time. All that and more coming up. Hi there, and welcome to Studio Break. Today we have Diana Baumbach on the podcast. Say hello, Diana. Hello. Just to give you a little background information, uh, Diana received her BFA degree from Washington University in St. Louis, her MFA degree from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and currently is teaching out at uh, the University of Wyoming. So my first question, just because we haven't we haven't really talked about this one. Today, which is basically kind of on the border between, it's in Holland, but it's on the border with Germany. Um, and, it, you know, it's such a small country that you can travel all the way across the country in a couple hours. So um, even, you know, even though it wasn't close to a lot of the major cities, it was still, I don't know, I still had a really easy time kind of getting around. And um, while I was there, I I had actually, um, it was a proposal-based residency, so I had a general plan in mind when I went there. Um, And my plan was basically to respond to ephemeral materials, uh, which is what I did. And that kind of allowed me to spend time in the studio, but also make my time just kind of out and about productive in a way, because I was um, just kind of gathering everyday paper goods and visual information, whether it was like packaging or receipts or postcards or whatever. Um, so I would, it was, it was really nice because, um, it wasn't all that structured. I was just kind of given a space to work and a space to live. And I had some deadlines, but otherwise I, I just kind of, um, explored the place and then came back to my studio and made work. Um, And then it culminated. I actually had two exhibitions while I was there at the very end. Um, But another fantastic thing about it was that it was, I think, the closest thing I've had to grad school since grad school because um, it was actually in an old schoolhouse, which was quite large. And they had maybe, I want to say, maybe 12 artist studios in there, um, 10 of which were local artists that were from Holland and then two international artists that were the artists in residence. So it was really fantastic because not only was I making my own work, but I was really part of a community there. Um, so yeah, that was something that I, I guess I didn't even realize going into it, but once I was there, it was something I really appreciated because, you know, when you're not in school, you don't always have those opportunities to just kind of casually stop by someone's studio and chat. So, um, that was a really fantastic part of it as well. Um, but yeah, sure. I, I basically was there. I made some work. I traveled a bit, um, kind of relaxed a bit, and uh, all in all, it was really fantastic. Nice, nice. Um, and you know, certainly as we as we keep going through these, um, we'll talk a bit more about the the studio work. But I, I think especially, you know, you've 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 lived in a lot of different kinds of places, and so I guess uh-huh. you know, just in terms of that, I'm I'm curious what. What what it's been like living out out west, you know, now for I, I don't even know how many years now is it? Oh my gosh, this is our fifth year out here, and um, it's kind of funny because you know when we first moved here, 
um, at least I didn't really have the expectation of staying. So um, it kind of took me a little while to really embrace it. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I I don't think that um, the idea of the West has really overtly influenced any of the work I've made. But the more I think about it, the more um, the landscape kind of has, just because it snows so much here, we're up in the mountains, and there are a lot of sort of like um, white-on-white type landscapes. And in that sort of a scenario, you start to notice shadow more so because there's a lack of color. So um, I guess, you know, culturally, the West hasn't really influenced me all that much. But living in Laramie, just the quantity of snow, I guess, um, in a way relates back to a lot of my work. Sure, sure. Well, and I, I was especially interested just because I know that you you lived in, you know, St. Louis, that you're uh-huh. mostly from Chicago. So, you know, I think that, you know, partially one of the interests that I have in this podcast is that I just have all these all these different people that I know that work in different places. Yeah. And there's kind of this idea that almost, I don't know, I, I don't think that you have to necessarily be living in New York to be somebody that's making work. And so I just, I'm really interested in, in how that works for different people. Absolutely. I agree completely. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I feel pretty satisfied with how I've approached living in an isolated place, but still getting my work out and still physically getting out myself. Um, and in some ways it's really a real gift because, um, I don't know, it allows me time to make work and not really have major distractions. And for me, it's, more so than like the larger place that I'm working in, it seems to be about the specific studio space. Um, that really has a big impact on the type of work I make or how sort of productive I am or um, whatever. And so I, I've noticed that, I don't know. I mean, I think people can investigate interesting ideas and make good work just about anywhere. And there's something are you still there, Dave? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, sorry, sorry. Something yep. just came up on the my little iPad. Sorry. Um, th- there's something kind of special, I think, about um, sort of being more selective in terms of your influences and what you're doing and not just having that constant bombardment of stuff going on. So for me, it's been it's really allowed for, I think, a pretty healthy pace of just kind of being able to ma- like balance making work and having a life and going to shows when I want to, but not feeling the pressure to always have something to do. Um, so I agree. I think it, it's it's really important to realize that, you know, you can have a career without living in New York City or L.A. I think that I absolutely think that's true. Sure, sure. And and the the biggest thing, I guess, just because it's, it's such a life-changing thing, um, how has your studio practice really changed since graduate school? I mean, it's really just... <laughs> The lack of having all those people around to kind of bounce ideas off of or? Yeah. Um, You know, I feel really lucky because I have been provided with a studio on campus. So um, my studio is next to a graphic designer. And then on the other side is um, a drawing professor. And then there's an art historian right there. So um, I still feel like I'm around a lot of artists. Um, The interaction, the level of interaction is a little bit different. You know, we don't necessarily do studio visits all that frequently. Um, So that's changed just in terms of kind of popping in on people and just kind of chatting casually. Um, Also, since I'm married to an artist, I I think that has changed in some ways, too. I think we talk less about art, actually, uh, now than we did 
previously, but I think it's okay. I think it's actually healthy that we have, you know, sort of a domestic life and then a professional life and, um, that there's some separation between those. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel lucky to have a studio space that's next to other artists. Um, but it, it, it's kind of a challenge to make work during the academic year. And for me, the, the real thing that oftentimes increases my production is just deadlines. You know, if I have a show coming up, I notice I'm significantly more productive. But then I always tend to kind of put some teaching-related obligations on the back burner, um, which, you know, it, that's just a balancing act. Um, and then in the summer, it's just really intense. You know, I was here, well, I went to Holland again last summer, but for the most part, I was here for the summer. And it was almost like being at a residency because um, there was just, you know, I was able to fully devote my time to making work. And that was really wonderful. Sure. Um, but, you know, I would say it's just the pacing is different. It's not kind of, there, there could be days where I don't make anything. Um, just because I have too many meetings and committees that I'm on and classes to teach and events to go to. Um, so, you know, I would say the job definitely interferes with the schedule. Um, but you know, there are very few people that can continue on with a schedule like you have in graduate school beyond graduate school. Um, so I still feel pretty fortunate. You know, I, I still feel like I've been able to be fairly productive, all things considered. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through, you know, I, just looking at your website, you know, obviously you have a lot of in, investment in terms of materials, but if uh, you could just kind of walk through, I guess, how you conceive an, of a, a project or an idea or a piece that you want to make, and I guess, you know, just how that carries through in terms of the way that you build it um, and exhibit it, you know, just what that process is like. Yeah, well, I think for me, I, I tend to be kind of um, goal oriented. So generally speaking, um, if I have a show that I know I'm going to be doing, um, and that's in a particular space that tends to really be a guiding factor. Um, so for example, I had a, and you know, one thing going back to the whole kind of studio practice postgraduate school thing. Um, one thing that has been really nice is I've had a number of curators, uh, come through my, and, you know, museum directors, people like that, come through my studio, and that's kind of a different level of conversation. Um, and so recently I had a curator come through. Um, I'm in a fellowship exhibition for the Wyoming Arts Council in Jackson Hole, and she came to my studio, looked at some of my work, and it just kind of turned into this sort of organic conversation about the space there, because architecture really was a major influence for me. And um, so she was kind of explaining that there is this really massive gridded window space. And um, I was sort of telling her that I had an interest in light and um, that I had done some pieces with light in Holland. And so we kind of just in our conversation started talking about this particular large gridded window and um, decided that it would make sense for me to do a piece specific to that. So um, the piece that I'm currently still, I'm just finishing it up right now. Um, it's, you know, site specific. It's, it's basically, oh, it's quite large, like maybe 10 foot by 10 foot um, broken down into rectangular shapes. And um, it's kind of like a, sort of a, a sampler platter of lots of things I've done 
over the past five years or so, um, just in terms of patterns I've played with. Um, but, you know, I've, I've remade them all for this particular piece. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, the architecture kind of guided my decision for that. And then also um, I recently had a show in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And then for that, I, it was in a miniature space. So it was kind of a public art project. And the space was at a 1 to 15 scale. So everything was dramatically reduced in terms of scale. And it was a full museum built in miniature. Um, so for that, I, I think the interesting and unusual aspects of that space also kind of guided some of the decisions that I've made, that I made for that show. Um, and so I, I think for me, it's, it's kind of, I, I think that the work that I do that is most effective tends to kind of be directly related to a place or directly in response to um, an architectural space. I, I think that seems, it seems like it's been really important to me um, and even a, an important part of my working process, um, like, for example, for my graduate exhibition, um, I, in addition to making the work, I also, before I made the work, I made a miniature scale model of the gallery so that I could sort of physically move my miniature pieces around um, and know where they might work. And then I went ahead and made everything full scale. So I think just this investigation of space and the unique qualities of any space. I, I think that really seems to guide me. Right. And, and in terms of materials, I mean, it seems like you use a lot of different, you know, found materials. Sometimes um, they really almost kind of want to reference, for me anyways, uh, almost like a craft kind of quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, I mean, and you talked a little bit about maybe just being surrounded by snow leading to a, uh, a white <laughs> kind of palette um, sometimes. But, I mean, are there, I mean... Is it really just like you've got like these interesting materials that you want to try using um, in terms of relating it to those spaces? I mean, what what's your relationship with the materials that you use? Yeah, well, I mean, primarily I work with paper. And I one thing I really love about paper is that it's just so accessible and so malleable. I mean, um, you know, whereas wood is also plainer, but what it takes to manipulate wood is much more than it does to take to manipulate paper so and I I think that there's something sort of like I said physical and relatable about paper I mean it's something we interact with every day in books and newspapers and signage and all sorts of things um so I, I feel like it's a material that um I'm really able to push in a lot of different ways um but still you know, it, it's relatively simple to do so. Um, another thing I like about it is that it's really portable and light. And so kind of going back to the whole craft reference, um, a lot of what I make, you know, I do have this fabulous big space on campus to work in, but most often I kind of start things there and then bring them home and we'll maybe be working, you know, on the couch while we're watching a movie and um, tend to like things that are kind of portable, in a way, much like, you know, knitting something in front of the TV would be something you could just kind of fuss with on your lap. Um, and I think a lot of my work ends up kind of having that quality to it. Something that, you know, is presented in a gallery, but is part of it is almost always executed just on my kitchen table or on the couch or in bed or, um, you know, in a way that can really be 
integrated, I guess, into my life without without really having to think about it too much, just kind of a, a repetitive process that I can do over and over again. And again, going back to something like wood, I probably, you know, wouldn't have a big piece of wood on my lap while sitting on the couch, whereas right. um, a, a piece of paper works better. Sure. It kind of is something I'm able to naturally integrate into lots of activities. Um, so I guess, I guess I just like the accessibility of it, the, the fact that you can make a cut and that cut is there and the tools are simple, um, and there's so many things you can do with it. Sure, sure. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about, at least, uh, you know, on, on your website, um, uh-huh. you make reference to this idea of um, these things that might be slightly functional almost or yeah, kind of relate yeah. to that. And, and certainly just knowing you, I know that you... Um, have a lot of very interesting uh, chairs and that, you know, just design in general is something uh-huh. that's very interesting to you. Um, is the, what, What's the, the relationship there? I mean, is it is it meant to kind of reference those things or is it not really directly about that? What What's that relationship like? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that just everyday design, things that we interact with every day, like a quilt or a chair, um, those are things that maybe we value personally, but don't necessarily have a lot of value in terms of like the larger society. Um, you know, a chair is just whatever the chair costs. Um, but maybe if it's been passed down through generations, you personally have a strong connection to it. Um, and I think that idea of like a connection to a functional object that you interact with every day is really interesting to me. Um, and so in my work, I, I, I look at a lot of forms which are, you know, just things that we don't think about as being overly valuable generally. So, you know, something like a, a paper towel or a table or, you know, things that we just kind of use every day. Um, and then, you know, when you take it out of the context of the home and put it into a gallery, it seems like the way it's valued or kind of appreciated changes. Um so, you know, context seems to really play a big role in terms of how we relate to objects. And also the hand. I mean, um, you know, just in terms of the craft tradition, a lot of things that we consider crafty are usually handmade. And um, I think that's really valuable. And, um, you know, whereas a mass-produced chair might not, we might think of that or identify that in a different way. So I I think that, you know, by making things by hand, even if they reference mass-produced objects, I think that too creates, in a way, kind of a different different valuation of that object. So, you know, a roll of toilet paper that you buy from the store is worth, what, a dollar. Um, Whereas if I spend, you know, a month kind of using perforations to recreate the entire role, well, that kind of becomes something different. I've invested time and um, it's displayed in a gallery. And um, I'm interested in, you know, how how we relate to these everyday objects and how I might kind of bring that to people's attention. Sure, sure. And, I, you know, I have a lot of weird questions for you. Yeah. But, um, I mean, what do you what do you think about in, in terms of the way that you involve play, I guess, in, in your work? Because, yeah. you know, one of the things, obviously, you're not... You're not necessarily working from, you know, trying to produce something that's hyper-representational. And, no, and, no. and certainly, you know, the formal elements are something that you really, you know, manipulate and play with. And so, I don't know, I was just kind of curious about that because I know that, you know, especially for myself, um, being interested in formal things, there's also ways that I find to, to make it 
I guess, playful. So I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I think that's an interesting idea that you bring up. And sometimes work that is more formal can seem kind of rigid because um, there are some constraints that the artist is establishing. But um, for me, what really becomes fun and playful is, you know, after I establish those sort of constraints of what a piece is going to kind of consist of, um, I, I love the wiggle room that I have to play within those constraints. So if I know something is going to be gridded, um, you know, maybe I pair that grid, that really rigid grid with something that really makes evidence of the hand. So I guess for me, I, I like to, I like the idea of playing within restraints as opposed to just having no restraints and just kind of doing whatever. Um, I, I guess, gosh, I was, I was at a seminar just yesterday and they were talking about, it was actually about autism and they were talking about how autistic children or adults um, really respond to role-playing games because they're able to kind of like, there are a set of constraints and rules and they can play within those rules. And I think for me, um, there's something equally satisfying about making work where I kind of establish some ground rules and then experiment within those rules. Um, and I don't think that everyone has that impulse to kind of, I don't know, play within a set of boundaries. But sure. um, I, I think, you know, that's what really keeps it exciting. Like if, if things were purely mechanical and there weren't any variations, I, I think that kind of becomes boring. But um, yeah, I mean, f for me, even though a lot of my work is kind of monotonous, um, I, I guess in terms of executing it, I, I feel as if there's a sense of play and, you know, I, I maybe have my constraints, but then I can push up against those constraints and see where I can take them. Sure. Uh, so I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, th I think it does. And, you know, it, it, I, I think I've come to learn, especially, you know, for the person that's the maker, I guess, in this case, you know, what individually we think of as being playful might not even register for other folks. Yeah. Just yeah. especially, you know, in your case, I mean, you're talking about something that might take an extreme amount of time. Uh huh. So I, I think that I think that's an, it's it's kind of meant to be a loaded question, I guess, in a way too. The the other thing is is that even though a lot of what I do does take quite a bit of time, um, if I've established my ground rules, I've kind of made the decisions. So then it's just a matter of kind of executing and actually it allows my mind to be free. Like I'm not necessarily thinking about every single decision I've, I'm making. And so I think, um, I don't know, in terms of the process, there's a lot of mental freedom and just daydreaming and um, listening to podcasts while I'm making work. And um, I guess that's kind of, that part of it can be kind of playful as well. Just, you know, if I, if I know what I need to do and I'm just doing it, then my mind can kind of wander and, be playful and go elsewhere. Uh, that's perfect because that's actually one of the things that I was going to ask you is what you know. What do you do? You, do you listen to then a lot of podcasts? Do you listen to music? I I know that I managed to entirely get caught up in the lost phenomenon four <laughs> years into it, and so I wound up streaming all of these seasons of Lost while I was doing all these residencies. So I uh -huh. just almost have it on in the background. So um, do, do you? So is it mostly podcasts or music or? Yeah, actually, it really began um, 
when I was in Holland, I, I really became obsessed with podcasts because there, the system is different and I wasn't able to access any TV shows that where, where I could understand what they were saying, right. um, you know, Hulu and things like that don't work in Europe. Um, so, or at least they didn't then. Um, and I also am not great with computers, so I had no idea how to make my iPod just play out music um, or, you know, attach it to the computer. I, I was kind of at a loss. So I was kind of left with podcasts at that point. And then since then, I just, it's kind of been my preferred thing to listen to while making work. Um, and I, I don't know. I think... I don't know. I, I really like to vary it. There are some standards that, like this American Life and Radio Lab, are great. But then um, I also really like the Moth. I don't know if you've listened to that one at yeah, all. I've heard that before. But um, it's just kind of nice to hear people talking, um, especially if you're in another country. Um, just hearing people <laughs> telling stories can be really comforting. Um, and I still really, I really enjoy that one. Um, and then. This Slate podcast, um, they have a Culture Gab Fest and a Double X podcast, which are just really, I don't know, I, I just personally find them really entertaining, um, maybe geared more towards women, but um, right. I really like those. And um, and then on occasion, that's <laughs> embarrassing to admit, <laughs> but sometimes I just like to put on a good trashy TV show in the background <laughs> and not even have to listen to it and just have something that's kind of really pleasurable and not overly thoughtful. Right, just right. Something to, again, allow my mind to have almost a resting point, you know, like where partially because with my job, I feel like I'm sort of constantly working and writing and assessing and um, to have something that's really just not critical at all and just kind of out there i don't know i think that really is healthy sometimes sure. um so yeah I, i've really kind of phased out music to a large extent i mean pandora every now and then but um i would say more more so podcasts and then the occasional trashy tv show <laughs> background. oh that, that that'll make its way somewhere in this in this podcast Okay. Reference well, to the trashy the, TV to what show. The trashy TV is <laughs> that I'm watching. Well, so in getting back to um, the studio work, um, yeah. and I appreciate it. That was a lovely little divergent there. Um, but um, so, in terms of how your viewers kind of take these 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 pieces, I mean, what kind of responses do you get? And I guess how 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 important is it that you control that response, or do you want it to be kind of open ended? Yeah, I think the response is really kind of dependent on who the audience is. So um, I've shown, I think, in some really varied places. So, um, like, for example, maybe three years ago, I had a show with my husband um, in rural Colorado, and it was a great space, but um, it was a very limited, in terms of the audience, they, were, they had a very limited access to visual art. And um, I think some people were actually kind of upset about my work, which it's, it seems pretty benign. It's, to me, it seems weird that they would get upset. But um, it kind of goes back to that whole idea of categorization. And so I made a, a bunch of pieces with uh, lights within them. So 
and they they referenced actual lights as well. And I think that a lot of the viewers thought, like, well, this doesn't belong here. Why would this be in a gallery? Um, this is not this is not art. Um, you know, even though I, I, I would argue otherwise. Um, but then, the, you know, there were some people there that were quite excited about the work and um, really engaged in it. So I, I think... I don't know. Some sometimes people get to me surprisingly angered by it, and then other times um, I, I feel like people are quite responsive. And um, so, over the last couple of years, I've had three shows in Holland, and it seems like the feedback I've gotten there has been quite different. Um, partially because um, at the country as a whole, I think just seems to be far more aware of aesthetic sensibilities in everyday life. And so it seems like my work is just more relevant to issues they're thinking about. Um, and, and then other times, you know, I guess if I'm showing in a group show, that's all artists working with paper, um, then it just kind of becomes normal once again. I, I don't know. So it, it kind of seems like, different places get different responses. Um, different audiences are going to have different responses. And yeah, I'm perfectly okay with that. I think that, you know, you can have an intention as an artist, but, um, whether or not that's communicated, there are so many variables. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's something interesting about the fact that people, kind of get confused and upset when they think like, well, this is a table. Why is it right. showed next to a painting? Um, I, I think that's interesting. I think, you know, better that than just like look at it and then keep walking. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm really okay with the fact that, you know, responses are varied. Um, and one of my goals is just to really kind of bring more of an awareness to the handmade um, especially since so much of what we do today is digital and, um, you kind of, it seems to me like the hand is valued less than it has been in the past. So, um, you know, one of my major goals is just to kind of draw an awareness to that. So if I do labor over something for months and months and months, even if it seems absurd and referencing something that you already know, um, the fact that it was made by hand hopefully will kind of, um, force viewers to think more about what that means. Sure. So I've got a lofty one for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what, what makes you want to create? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I that said lofty, lofty, you know, one. I mean, well, I mean, um, huh, that's a great question. Um, my background is actually in dance. And so, I haven't always really focused on visual art. I mean, I was very, very committed to dance. And I think that, and then I grew up in a household where my mother is an artist. And so she had a studio at, and still has a studio at home um, and really made her living as an artist. Um, so I think for me, it's just, I, I see a lot of overlap between multiple creative processes. And I, I think it's not so much a decision on my part as it is just like a the, the way I am more right. than anything else. And I think that, um, for me, the impulse to dance is very similar to the impulse to use my hands. I think there's just something about the physicality, um, making, making or doing something that is not necessarily 
concrete. It's kind of more fluid in terms of how it might be interpreted. I think that's just something I grew up around and have always done. And um, I mean, it's really hard to to pinpoint it. Um, But I think there's also just a level of satisfaction that I get from visual art, making art, um, as well as performing art um, and design. I, I think... I don't know. It's really hard to put into words. Um, But I think for some of us, it's just kind of this impulse that we have, you know, that um, I I think it's healthy to listen to that and to just kind of commit to it. Thanks again to Diana for joining us today. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting dianabombach.com or you can find links available at studiobreak.wordpress.com. If you happen to enjoy the tunes by Tony Higgins, go to freemusicarchive.com and listen for free. Thanks for tuning into the Studio Break podcast, and we'll see you next time.